Time to go. This has to be my most favorite part of the movie. The oh, time to pack it up. There's going to be a fight. I don't want to break my instrument. And then <laughs> running out. So good. by someone who has directed some of the best movies in American film history. We are talking The Color Purple. Whoopi Goldberg's introduction into film. Big star, big, big star. And Steven Spielberg's 1985 classic. In the middle of his career, Right, he's he he had stuff prior to this. He had stuff after this. Never on my radar, though. I I, I never thought about this movie until watching it for this podcast, and I made a wrong choice. I made the wrong choice, y'all. So, what is this movie about? It is about a southern woman who struggles to find who she is in the turn of the 20th century, early 20th century, Georgian, Southern, traditional, religious, both upbringing and later in life, and all kinds of abuse. I'm talking specifically of Seeley, Miss Seeley, played by Whoopi Goldberg. The film says it is introducing her, so I can imagine that this is like her big major film breakthrough. The funny thing is, is like she was just two years later, she was Guinan on Star Trek The Next Generation. Like, that's crazy to me. That's crazy. Other people in this movie, though, uh, Danny Glover and Oprah Winfrey, as well as Margaret Avery and Willard E. Pugh. And a few others here and there that you probably f- saw throughout, you know, the 70s, 80s, and 90s in big and small pictures. But Danny Glover, Whoopi Goldberg, and Oprah Winfrey are pretty much the faces and the people that you remember from this movie. Now, this movie is based on the book by Alice Walker. Alice Walker won the Pulitzer Prize for this story. And we follow the character of Celie, Celie Johnson, uh, when she is a teenager and she has two children by who we think is her father. And then 
Uh, she gets married off that same year to Danny Glover's character, who for the longest time, we only know his name as Mr. Because he is incredibly abusive towards Celie. And we'll get into that in this particular episode. So stick around. We're talking the color purple. My guest host today is friend of the show, Dr. Wynn Goodfriend. She is a professor of psychology at Buena Vista University in Iowa. This is her sixth appearance on the show, hence friend of the show. Wind, how are things going since we last spoke, which was last year? Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so excited to be here for time number six. Am I the winner? Is this the most times? <laughs> this is the most times, and you've been the winner oh. for a long time now. <laughs> Oh, I feel so special. Thank you so much for having me. Of back. course, your perspective on these films and psychology is invaluable to this show. I'm very competitive, so this means a lot. <laughs> Excellent. So what have you been up to uh, since uh, we last spoke? Well, I've had several projects going in addition to, of course, my classes. Um, I will share with this audience... Um, Two, about which I'm particularly excited. One is that um, you and I share that we have projects with a company called The Great Courses. Mm -hmm. So you um, recently had your docu-series released on uh, cognitive biases with The Great Courses. Mm -hmm. And so I'm currently um, working with that company on my own docu-series. Um, my, my project is on the psychology of cults and cult manipulation. Mm. So, So um, I feel like I need to really articulate the word cult because people think sometimes I'm saying cult, like a baby horse, (laughs) but it's cults like Jim Jones, crazy group cult. (laughs) So cult c-u-l-t so it's going to be um 12 episodes about famous cults and psychological manipulation of cults so i'm really excited about that that's awesome i can't wait to uh i can't wait to consume this one because uh i've been wanting to put more cult stuff into my classes but not really a a good place to start and so i think i'm going to use this as a jumping off point to include some of the really some of the really good stuff because the great thing about the great courses <laughs> uh, is that the the audience is a general audience, and so you're not speaking right. to psychology students or even uh, or other psychology professionals. You're speaking to people who have maybe never taken a psych class in their lives, and they're like, yep. "Oh, cults are cool. I'll I'll watch this thing." And and you basically have to explain everything from fresh right from a completely novice standpoint so it it challenges us as writers to produce the kind of uh the produce the kind of language that everyone can latch on to and and understand so i i think it's great and i'm i'm looking forward to it and what's the other thing and um the other thing is recently released a book on the psychology of the very popular show Stranger Things. So nice. I have uh, just one chapter mm-hmm. in that book. I didn't write the whole book or anything, um, but I'm excited about that book because my chapter is about 
friendship theory. So um, the psychology of friendships and mm-hmm. sort of the rules of friendships and how do friendships develop. And I'm excited about that particular book because all of the profits of the book go to a charity that helps find lost children, which oh, is one wow. of the themes of the show. And was there any particular reason you chose Stranger Things? Was it like a uh, write a chapter on friendship or write a chapter on Stranger Things? It's actually one in a series of books about psychology in popular culture. And so um, the the editor of the series gets to choose sort of the particular uh, topic. Mm -hmm. Um, And so he chose Stranger Things. And then I've written in maybe two-thirds of the books in the series. Oh, yes. I think I remember you talking to us about uh, some of the other chapters you've had in other Mm -hmm. books previously. So now my question then is uh, for The Stranger Things, were you taking a a look at the friendship across all of the seasons that have been uh, released so far or um, just a a set of them? All of the episodes so So far. far. So um, everything except for what will be the last season. Yeah. And uh, focusing on the f- the the core friend group of the four D and D friends from the original. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. I love that. That they're they're such a great group of friends, and they you know they have conflict like real friend groups do. You know. Absolutely, and and they kind of grow up over the the season. You and we know, get to watch them. They do kind that. of go through adolescence, yeah. and and they have conflict because you know girls come mm-hmm. and sexuality kind of gets a little mixed up in there mm-hmm. and so um so we talk about that in the chapter excellent well check that out listener because it'll if you it, if you like stranger things it'll be a groovy time and the the, <laughs> the other thing that um i noticed that you were you were doing since the last time we spoke is you've been a world traveler a little bit of a uh, little bit of living vicariously through you since I can't do that right now. Uh, and so what were some of the highlights from the trips that you've taken recently? Well, I've, I'm trying to kind of make up for, for COVID <laughs> sure. uh, since couldn't, couldn't travel then. Um, I am a, a big traveler. That's probably my main hobby. Uh, I like to try to go to a different country every year. Wow. So most recently I was in Belgium mm-hmm. for a conference over spring break um, coming up. In just a few weeks, I will be taking 12 students from my university to Spain. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a three-week language immersion class. I would really like to learn Spanish. So we'll be uh, sort of doing four hours of Spanish every day and then sort of touring around Spain. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I'm spending a week in Ireland later in the year. And then I'm going to spend a week in Greece. Uh, doing anything in particular in Greece, the sightseeing or the le- lounging around the Aegean Sea? Uh, the the second one, my <laughs> my husband and I both have a sabbatical in the fall, uh-huh. and so we are we are going to be doing you know work, yeah, because of sabbatical, but we will also be doing some lounging. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I hope the Aegean is is nice and uh, crisp for you uh, when you're out there. So let's get to the film today, right? The Color Purple. So uh, recently, and as you've mentioned uh, in your other other previous appearances on the show, that you regularly teach on rotation, psych and film. And uh, I was watching very closely this last time that you taught it. I think it was in the fall, uh, correct? 
Yep. And uh, so I was looking back through and I wanted to ha- have you back on the show. And I was looking back through of the movies that you'd done. Of course, some of the ones were on the uh, on, on previous shows that we've had, uh, you and I. Uh, also some that have been uh, with other guests as well. So I was looking for maybe something a little bit new, a little bit different than uh, we've discussed before. And I, I saw The Color Purple. And I had heard about this movie. And uh, to to the listeners, I'm just going to re- repeat myself here. Uh, I slept on this movie. Uh, did not really knew it existed. Kind of knew that there was this movie from the, the 80s that was pretty much had no major white actors in it. And it was uh, it was a story about <laughs> the rural South. But that was about it. Didn't re- didn't realize that it was Whoopi Goldberg's essentially big breakout role. Um, didn't realize that uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey was in it and definitely didn't realize that Danny Glover played a real bad man a real bad man so i saw that and it's got very understated poster to it it's just um it's just uh whoopie's character sitting in a window reading the letter uh and and it's a silhouette and it's just like what what is this movie about usually posters kind of tell you what the movie's about no idea so I saw that and I, I asked you uh, about this. So my question for you, Wind, is since we sort of chose this movie together, it was in your second film class. So uh, just to give us a little taste before we jump into a discussion of the movie in general, what makes you put this in your second film class? What is what is the impetus for including it in this class? So... <sighs> Let me answer that kind of two different ways. Okay. One one is I love the book, The Color Purple. Mm-hmm. Um, so the book is a feminist classic. Um, I'm also, in addition to teaching psychology classes, I'm the director of the gender studies program on my campus. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I try to make my students aware of the history of feminism mm-hmm. and and these feminist classic you know, novels and art and things like that yeah um you mentioned the the cover of the poster of the movie um and it's it's also a scene in the movie right where we see Whoopi goldberg's sort of silhouette um and that was because that was the book cover gotcha okay so that's why that sort of iconic um image it was used for the movie poster was because that was the original book cover so they wanted to grab audiences that way Right. Okay. So, um, so this book is in the top 100 banned books of all time. And <laughs> and it's really controversial. Um, and, and I mentioned that um, partially just to kind of give context for the importance of The Color Purple as both a book and as a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but also uh, because I know that my mom is listening to this podcast and um, my mom is... Um, kind of a badass if I'm allowed to say that word and <laughs> uh, she runs she runs a banned books club and she Love is it. going to be talking about the color purple next month actually awesome so perfect timing <laughs> so for the release have... of this episode yep exactly. Love it. yeah so she I think she's gonna have her her club listen to this podcast so um <laughs> so anyway back to no why pressure I for me for... <laughs> back to why um I have my students 
watch the movie. Um, so I choose movies. I think I've mentioned this before. I choose movies that I think my students haven't already seen and that are important either for a psychological purpose mm -hmm. and or for sort of a history of film purpose. Okay. Um, so like they were directed by Stanley Kubrick or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, and this film um, was directed by um, Spielberg, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so that it was his first n film that wasn't like a summer blockbuster, yeah. like E.T. Yeah. Um, and and the choice of him as a director was controversial because a lot of people said it should be a director of color. Um, and he was kind of hesitant to take it on. He actually, um, I believe, waived his fee and did it for um, sort of union minimum, which was like way less than he normally would have gotten. Especially um, at that time, mid 80s. Yeah, definitely. So so it's important um, for lots of reasons. Um, but as you have already mentioned, it was really kind of the breakout film for many of the actors. Um, and so so for one reason, I show it to my students because it's important for a sort of a history of film perspective. Yeah. But also, of course, the psychological content. Of yeah. It. Um, so my students are from the rural Midwest. Mm -hmm. um, and so many of them are from kind of rural relatively white towns mm -hmm. and um so i like to sort of expose them to other ideas <laughs> and um and so i think it's important also for us to just acknowledge that um i'm a white person as far as i know you identify as a white i'm person. a white person yeah um, through and through yeah and so i think it's important for us to just acknowledge that you know our discussion and analysis of the color purple is, is definitely going to be sort of influenced by that and um and it's important for, yeah. for us to just say, you know, certainly uh, two white people talking about the color purple, <laughs> you know, have have to just say uh, our view is, is certainly missing something than if we had, you know, people of color who could potentially be involved in the conversation. Yeah. And and that's a great uh, positionality statement here, too. And. The other thing that I want to add is that this is a this is a, a a feminist book, and of course men can be feminists. I consider myself one, um, but the the vast majority of the story focuses on women, and of that's another yeah. thing that I cannot empathize with. Uh, I can obviously sympathize with the women of the story because of they're treated very poorly, especially by the men in the story. So uh, I think it's important to for me to add that bit to this. And in the spirit of that and the spirit of uh, wind sort of taking this as a as a teaching tool, this this film as a teaching tool, I will be here to listen and to ask questions. And that's going to be my role in this conversation. And, uh, and I think that's a good place to start. So you mentioned controversy, and I want to talk about a little bit, uh, a little bit of uh, the controversy right at the top here. This is a phenomenal film, uh, so well acted. Uh, we don't know who Whoopi Goldberg was before this, right? We we kind of had an idea of who Danny Glover was. I mean, he was already uh, in Lethal Weapon and in previous stuff in the 1970s. So he was already pr a pretty big name. And of course he was probably the splashed name right at the top for all of the advertising that went into this, you know, besides this film is directed by Steven Spielberg, you know, uh, with 
uh, Don LaFontaine doing in a world kind of <laughs> kind of <laughs> trailers that used to be that used to be the case, right? But then Oprah, not a real big name at the time, right? And uh, you get like five seconds total of Lawrence Fishburne, and he says like a total of right. three words or whatever. Back when he was Larry Fishburne. Larry Fishburne. Oh, my. I did not know he went by Larry. Oh, yeah. That's in the credits. He's Larry. (laughs) That's so good. Oh, my goodness. But so we've had we have all of these newcomers and they get they it's a great film. Everyone thinks so. Gets nominated for the Academy Awards and all of the 11 Academy Awards. 11. So all of the big categories plus like. You know, costume design and editing and ad- uh, uh, best screenplay, ad- adapted screenplay, of course. And it wins none of them. Right. So, right. So this is controversial for so many reasons, right? One is it holds the record. I think maybe it's tied with one other film, but it holds the record for the most Academy Award nominations without winning any. Oh, my god. So goodness. 11 nominations, zero wins. It as you said, it was in pretty much all of the major categories, except for Best Director. Spielberg was not nominated for Best Director. Interesting. Which was controversial in and of itself, right? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if that was some sort of punishment to him for taking on the film, right? Or I, I don't know. That's weird. But it was it was an, an example at the time of, you know, African-American people not getting acknowledgement for doing really well. And so, you know, that has been a problem with the Academy Awards forever. And it was controversial because this film and the book have been hated on by kind of everyone. So in some ways, it seems like, okay, like maybe white people don't like it, Mm -hmm. but also some African-American people don't like it. So when this film premiered, the NAACP picketed the premiere of the film because they perceived that it portrayed African-American people in a negative light. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like you you can't win (laughs) in some ways. Um, And so the controversy of this book and film uh, I feel it's a really important reason why it's it's such a conversation piece and and why Alice Walker, you know, who was the author of the original book, mm-hmm. why she was saying, you know, we need to be talking about these issues. We need to be talking about um, the subjugation of women and um, the the fact that we have all these issues that are addressed in the book and, and in the movie um, because we're not talking about them. We're not doing anything about them. Mm-hmm. And generations of people are losing that history, right? We we yeah. We talk about this a lot in you know, classes like history of psych, where it's always surprising to students that psychology used to be and 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 especially mental health treatment used to be so barbaric. And it's just like, well, we need to keep talking about it, and we need to keep referencing it and portraying it and showing people that it didn't used to be all of sunshine and daisies with the medication right. uh, st- and other more humane treatments that we have now. People did some gnarly stuff. Uh, and so, right. I mean, 
it, it sounds like that story from Alice Walker's perspective needed to be told. And somebody in Hollywood was like, we need to make a movie out of this. So when I teach this film in class, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all we, we always start the class with what are the psychological topics or themes that you're going to see? And then they sh they watch the film and then they have to write a paper about yeah. it. So there are so many psychological topics that we could discuss for this film. Um, so lots of themes. Um, really important things we could talk about uh, are resilience yep. in the face of trauma. Miss Seeley. Absolutely. Uh, Pretty much every character yeah. has some kind of trauma that they go through. Um, empowerment is a huge thing. We see the arc of these characters, you know, um, especially, of course, the women, you know, taking on their selves and, and speaking with their voices at the end and, yep. and sort of making their own way. We see redemption is a really important theme, you know, um, with Danny Glover's character really kind of finally sort of taking responsibility for his choices. Penny and my money, not one thin dime. Did I ever ask you for anything? I Did I ever ask you for anything? I never asked you for nothing, not even your sorry ass hand in marriage. Nothing. I never asked you for nothing. <laughs> oh, Sophia home now. Sophia home. Things gonna be changing around here, too. I'm going with Shug. You going where? I'm going with Miss Seely and Shug. Cause I'm fixing a thing. Too much racket going on around this house. Pass me them peas, yeah. Now listen, Squeak. Oh, my name ain't Squeak. What? My name is Mary Agnes. Mary what? <laughs> Mary Agnes. Mary Agnes. I thought it was Squeak. Mary, who gives a damn? Boy, if you gonna let this little nappy-head gal sit here and cuss you out like that, you sitting at the head of your own dinner table and you acting like a waiter. Hush, you old fool, always meddling in somebody's business. Sophia home now. Just hush up. She'll be back. She'll got talent. She can sing. She got spunk. She can talk to anybody. She can stand up and be noticed. But what you got? You're ugly, you're skinny, you shake funny. And you're too scared to open your mouth to people. All you fit to do is be Shug's maid. Take out a slop jar and maybe cook her food. And you ain't even that good of a cook anyway. <laughs> well, she's a lot better than that first wife you married. And this house ain't been clean good since my first wife died. And nobody crazy enough to marry you. So what you gonna do? Hire yourself to fall? <laughs> or maybe somebody let you work on that railroad. <laughs> <laughs> Make me sweep out the caboose. <laughs> Any more letters come? Could be. Could be not. Who's to say? Sailing, no! I can't you. Until you do right by me, everything you think about is gonna cry. Don't do it, Miss Sealy. Trade places with what I've been through. Come on, Miss Haley. Let's go to the car. He ain't worth it. He ain't worth it. Who you think you Let's is? You can't cuss nobody. Look at you. You're black, you're poor, you're ugly, you're a woman, you're nothing at all. Do you do right by me? Everything you even think about gonna fail. 
been a pleasure meeting all of you. Bye. Glad I didn't come back just in time. Look like well, I. Well, we need some stability around here. That's for sure. I should have locked you up and just let you out to work. The jail you planned for me is the one you're gonna rot in. See, they get in the car, get in the car. Knocked you up on Everything you've done to me. Already done to you. I'm poor. That was my least favorite part of the movie. I, I understand that, that it was going to happen, uh, but it was my least favorite part because it was so quick and uh, understated that you could miss it if you weren't paying attention. The, the immigration piece at the end when he helps. Yes, when he helps bring them. Them, yeah, them come to the right, United States. With the cash that he has uh, on hand, right? Right. The, the do right by me or you will be cursed. Right. I, I mean, I love that scene, of course where uh Seely curses him uh to right. oblivion like your your life is going to be crap until you do right by me and of course he recognizes that he needs to do right by her but i don't know if he truly earned that his character i don't i don't know if he truly I, earned that i think that's one of the differences between sort of the the book and the movie okay. right in the movie they kind of wrap that up with a pretty bow mm. in mm. maybe i don't know 5 minutes yeah in the book, it, it takes place over several okay. years. Okay. So it, so maybe maybe more realistic. Yeah, right? that sounds like a more realistic redemption arc uh, than what you see in the movie. And we were talking about, uh, just a, a slight aside before we jump into more of the psych stuff, uh, we were talking about before we started recording how maybe the movie was a little a little bit long. And it was two, it's yeah. a two and a half hour movie. Uh, and most of that is movie. That's not even that long of credits, to be honest with you, at the end. But, you know, it's it's a pretty long drama uh, that has many pacing lulls in it. And, it, yeah, it kind of was a bit of a bummer from a filmmaking standpoint, uh, the rushed ending. I would like to have I would have liked to have spent right. more time with that ending, both from. Danny Glover's Albert character and then Celie meeting her kids and seeing Nettie, her sister, again for the first time in, what, 30-something years?
of it dragged right and then parts of it seemed rushed so i'm not sure about the pacing yeah. so so the main topic that i try to hit on in class mm-hmm. is this concept of intersectionality okay and i'm not sure how many of my students have heard of intersectionality before i introduce it to them in the class so um intersectionality originally actually comes from a different field it comes from legal studies I did not know uh, that. It's credited, to, yeah. It's come. It's credited to a woman, um, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. She's an African American legal studies professor, and uh, she came across a case um, where there was a a woman who um, basically tried to get a job at a car manufacturing plant, okay. and she was not hired by the plant. And she sued them for not hiring her. Um, and she basically said, like, I didn't get the job because I'm a black woman. Mm-hmm. And the judge said, well, you can't like she lost the case because the judge said they hire black people and they hire women. And so you can't prove sexism and you can't prove racism. Wow. So you, you have no case. So the issue was this car manufacturing plant hired black men Uh to work in the factory and they hired white women to work in the office, but they didn't hire black women. Mm -hmm. But there was no legal concept for the combination of her identity. So Professor Crenshaw created this concept of intersectionality and her point was you basically, if you don't have a name for something, you can't really um, do anything about it. <laughs> basically, you can't sort of have a precedent if you can't label yeah. it. So she is credited with this term intersectionality, which is the idea of the the kind of coming together um, or crossover or over- overlap of your multiple identities. Right. And we all have multiple identities, yeah. right? So I am white. I'm a woman. Mm-hmm. I consider, I identify as pansexual, mm-hmm. 
I, um, you know, live in Iowa. Uh, I'm middle class. Yeah. So all of these things are part of my identity and, and how I experience the world has a combination of privilege and prejudice mm-hmm. or sort of discrimination and oppression or, you know, opportunity based on the combination of those things. And, and so you are a white man, Mm -hmm. right? And your experience is different from both a white woman and a black man, right? right? So it's the combination of these things. And so that's what intersectionality is all about, right? And so um, just to kind of wrap this up before we get back to the movie, Mm -hmm. um, the example of intersectionality that I use in my class that I, I think hopefully hits home with the students is everyone is familiar with the wage gap in the yeah, United States, right. right? So all of my students have heard the, the sort of statistic that for a typical job in the United States, if a man gets a dollar, a woman will get about 80 yeah. cents. Yeah. And everyone, and I ask them, how much does a woman get? And they all say 80 cents. Okay. But that is the number of how much a white woman gets. Right. And I say, how much does a black woman mm-hmm. get? And they all kind of stare at me. Well, the statistics show that a black woman gets 63 cents and a Latina woman gets 55 cents. So why are we not talking about those numbers? Those numbers totally suck. Yeah. Right? Like 55 cents, that's no good. Yeah. Right? So why aren't we talking about 55 cents? Yeah. Right? Why are we only talking about it from a white person's perspective? So. The, the fourth wave of feminism, which is the wave that we're in mm-hmm. right now, is this idea of all of the history of feminism in the United States has been white feminism. Mm-hmm. And intersectionality is the idea that feminism has to be more inclusive and it has to talk about other people's perspective and other people's story. Right. So I like the color purple because it features this broader perspective. Yeah, we we get to see, uh, I'll just say three women, three main women uh, in that movie, uh, three uh, black women who are all different people through and through. You clearly see their their um, personalities shine through in every scene that they're in and every scene that they share. Um, but they have a shared experience in society that nobody else in the movie can really can can really share. So yeah, that makes a it makes a lot of sense. And just to bring some levity to this, I I want to take back take you back to your description where you said I live in Iowa, but you didn't say that you were an Iowan, and I thought that was funny. <laughs> I'm not you know, one of you. So, I just live here. <laughs> it's so funny that you actually point that out because I, I did not realize I said it that way. So good, good call on that. It's so funny because I absolutely am an Iowan. I was born here. I was raised in Iowa. <laughs> I, I moved out of Iowa for uh, eight years. I went to Purdue for yeah. grad school, that, which is in Indiana. And then I lived in Idaho for two years. So I only lived I in I states. Wow. And your brother lives in <laughs> Chicago is like, <laughs> yes, I state. So, so it's funny though, because I, my entire life, people have always shown surprise that I am from mm-hmm. Iowa because apparently my personality is not very Iowa. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and so I, 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 not having been here for that long, <laughs> I agree with them. So it's funny because I guess the culture of Iowa is like not particularly sarcastic and um, not particularly blunt, which I am both sarcastic and super blunt. <laughs> and so sometimes on the first day of class, I ask my students, like after, after I've introduced myself and I've gone through the whole yeah. thing, um, I say, guess what state mm-hmm. I'm from? And the modal response, the most common response is New Jersey. New Jersey. Well. And I don't know what that even means. Like, I think it just means I'm very yeah. direct and I like don't really BS, which is true. <laughs> I mean, I take that as a compliment. Being from the I, other I being I, from the other coast. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I uh, that's that was one of the biggest culture culture shock. Well, I'll, I'll put air quotes around that culture shock things that 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 I had to grapple with because uh California is very different from the Midwest. So, um I just thought that was I just thought that was funny. Uh <laughs> we let's let's jump back into the seriousness right. of this movie. Right. So, I want to focus on the intersectionality uh with respect to Seely, the uh, main character. And so yeah. we're not having to do any kind of um, content warnings or anything. like that. I'm going to dance around some of the, the heavier stuff in the movie. So Seely is the victim of abuse from her father. And spoiler alert, turns out wasn't actually her father, just a dude that her, her and her sister mother married uh, after her father left or died or something like that just out of the picture. Yeah, her, her stepfather. Yeah, so her stepfather ended up um, abusing her and she ends up getting essentially arranged marriage off to Danny Glover's character, Albert. And I said at the top of the show that we don't even know what his name is until like halfway through right. the movie. Right. She just calls she him just Mr. Calls him Mr. And it's a it is an extremely uh, lopsided relationship, right? So we've got him um, as the head of household running the farm. His previous wife uh, and mother of his children died. Uh, he has a lot of children, and he needs someone to take care of everything while he takes care of the farm. And that's how he describes it. He first wants her sister Nettie, who is younger than her. And uh, the stepfather of Celia and Nettie does does not agree. And so he Albert, Danny Glover, settles for Celia, even though he thinks she's ugly and that she's not really good for anything and uh, doesn't end up fathering any children with her. Uh, and essentially is there to be a to be a house, a housewife. I, I think it's important to just note. The reason he doesn't not bother children with her is because she's been abused in the past and I think is infertile. Infertile. Okay. I, I wonder if that's implied because, in the movie. Not because he does not right. have relations with her. True. He does have a lot of relations <laughs> with her. Yes. Right. Against her. Against will. her wishes. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Uh, so what are some of the what are some of the biggest takeaways from Celie and her characterization that you want your students to grab hold uh, of in this intersectionality? I think it's really important to 
talk about one of the other controversies of the movie, again, sort of compared to the book. And I know that your podcast is not about books. <laughs> but, <laughs> and yeah, books, books make movies. So go for it. But it's it's a it's an important part of the movie and how the movie was made and Spielberg's yeah. choices, um, which were that in the book, her identity and her empowerment and growth are very much about her embracing her identity as a lesbian. Gotcha. And that's downplayed quite a bit in the movie. There's some implications, um, but yeah, you if you blink, you miss it. Yeah. So they they sort of have a nod to it in a very sort of G-rated way. Um, <laughs> the movie is PG. <laughs> PG. Um, and and Spielberg actually said he purposely downplayed that aspect for two reasons. One was he did not want a PG thirteen rating. Oh. And because he sort of chickened out, honestly, um, I, know, I mean, I, I don't think he used that phrase, but, you know, it was the 80s. <laughs> he was, you know, trying to, you know, keep his career going. So um, and he had a lot of stuff that he was dealing with in taking this movie on to sort of against some people's advice. And so one of the things that I hope my students know is that um, that is an important part of the original storyline, mm -hmm. and um, it's it's a, an important part of Alice Walker's point mm -hmm. in the original book, and it's an important part of Whoopi Goldberg's life. I mean, she identifies as gay mm -hmm. in her real life, and I think it's an important part of fourth wave feminism to embrace the LGBTQIA2S community, and mm -hmm. um, and so that's. I think something that I, I like to point out as something that's maybe missing in the movie that I wish. So what does that change for Celie then in the end? Do you think that uh, her characterization in the movie suffers from this missing piece? In some ways, yes. And in some ways, no, mm -hmm. because I think that the movie still shows the importance of maybe sisterhood okay. and sort of the, the friendship of women, right? Mm -hmm. We still have that. We still have the support of women. We still have um, that, that friendship piece, but it changes the relationship of Celie and Shug. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're sort of just shown to be friends. Yeah. And, um, and I think Shug as a character is bi or pansexual, mm -hmm. right? Um, legitimately and authentically, but I I do think in some ways it's kind of a cop out. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, Dumbledore's gay, but not really like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> so mm -hmm. from it, it's almost it's almost disappointing to the LGBTQIA community to not have better representation. Yeah, especially in the 80s when they were struggling with representation and and negative stereotypes and and all sorts of of bad stuff. So. In the book, the relationship uh, between Shogun and uh, and Celie is is a lot more than what you see in the movie. That's that's what you're you're saying. It's more explicit. Yeah, more explicit. Okay, um, and so we get uh, there's a great scene where Celie is meeting is almost meeting Shug for the first time when she is, I guess, 
uh, coming down from a lot of drugs and or alcohol or something, and she's in the bathtub naked. Um, and she's like, what? You've never seen a, a, a woman's body before. And I think that I think that wears one illusion to it. But you're right. It It's sort of downplayed as like, oh, it's just she's just a naked woman who doesn't care about having other people see her naked. But Celia is very um, bashful in that in that moment in the scene uh, because right. she likely because hasn't. She, well, other than her children, her entire experience is abuse. Right. Yeah. What you staring at? Never seen a naked woman before? You got any cheering? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Me, I ain't that old. Two? Where they at? I don't know. Who are you? Silly, ma'am. You ain't well. <laughs> Mind your own goddamn business. I feels just fine. Just had to eat. Now give me some more bubbling oil and put it in this tub. <laughs> you got kids? <laughs> yeah. <sighs> they was my ma and pa. Never know the child to come out right. Unless he's a man around. children got to have a paw moving moving beyond the the intersectionality there of of sexuality uh what kinds of changes do you see in Celie's character from the beginning of the movie uh through to the end what's her what's her growth well, another really important scene and change in Celie is when we see her talking to Oprah Winfrey's character who um, has just married Harpo, right? Mm -hmm. And Harpo's struggling, um, you know, how do I control her? Right. And Celie says, beat her, mm -hmm. right? And that's such a hard scene for the audience because you know Celie has been abused her entire life mm. why would you wish that on someone else right and and so that's that's such an important scene because it's the idea that you know someone who has been abused their entire life that's all they know and in the book it, it kind of just describes uh, it's it's written from Celie's perspective right so the sure. idea is she's really envious of the empowerment that she sees and and she she's so envious that she kind of wants this other person to be brought down in some ways um and so it in some ways it shows kind of the humanity of the character and the fact that she regrets that later mm -hmm. and she she tries to then empower other people shows the growth in her character. You told Harpo to beat me. 
it was that mule, Paul. Old Joy, the, the, the old Joy the mule. I tell you, I was out there trying to plow that north field, and the mule just went crazy. He started kicking and bucking, hitting it right there. Bust my eye, bust my lip. All my life, I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my uncles. I had to fight my brothers. Girl, child ain't safe in the family men's. But I ain't never thought I had to fight in my own house. I love Hoppo. God knows I do. But I kill him dead before I let him beat me. And that's a hoof print. Did you look like a hoof print there, Paul? No, that looked like a fist print. Right? No, no, sir. No, sir. Ain't no fist touch my face. No, sir. Now, you want a dead son-in-law, Miss Seeley? You keep on advising him like you do. This life be over soon. Heaven lasts always. Girl, you ought to bash Mr.'s head open and think about heaven later. And uh, I think you get a, a full 360 moment uh, at the very end when it's uh, a family dinner and Suge and her new husband are, are leaving and they're going to take Celie with her uh, out of that home. And that's when the, the whole, you know... Uh, cursing goes on uh and and you you get the full you get the full 360 there because um oprah winfrey's character sophia sophia yeah thank you uh, i was blanking on her name it's okay i was blanking too so. <laughs> <laughs> uh where sophia essentially um tells Celie that she looks up to Celie and she she thanks Celie for everything that she's done and all right. of that even in the face of this one vulnerable um mistake right and so that brings back to earlier when i was saying you know there are various themes in this mm -hmm. redemption is i think a really important theme right yeah. because we see the redemption of albert and we see the redemption of Celie because Celie makes mistakes too, right? Yeah. Celie makes a mistake when she tells Harpo, beat your wife. Right. Um, but she redeems herself because, you know, that's all she knows. And she's envious and she makes mistakes just like everybody. And she helps Sophia in these really important ways later. And you see that regret that she has. Um, and that's so important to Sophia later. And considering and again, that shows... Sophia spent eight years in, in jail, in prison. Right. Because, you know, Miss Millie is this clueless, entitled woman who's just, you know, abusing her in this whole other way, right? Yeah. So I I think this redemption piece is another really important theme. Yeah, I agree. I I, I think that as I said, uh, I don't know if, if Albert's was earned, uh, but, you know, I do believe the connection between these three women, Suge, Celie, and Sophia, is all earned. I think Suge uh, earns her redemption for uh, how she entered into the picture. So for those uh, people who are listening who haven't seen The Color Purple, Suge Avery is a jazz singer and performer. And is the uh, love of Albert's life. 
uh, except that it is mostly unrequited, except for maybe a few flings here and there. But he acts in a completely different way uh, to Suge than he does to Seely. And I think uh, Suge, excuse me, uh, there's too many S sounds. Sophia, Seely, and Suge. Great. (laughs) Um, I think Suge recognizes that pretty immediately. Even yeah. though she calls Seely ugly the first time she sees her, she's probably high or drunk or something. And Seely remembers that, by the way. And, and yeah, that's and, hurtful. Yeah, very, very hurtful. Um, but recognizes how he, uh, how Albert treats Seely, and knows that that's not in an appropriate way. And so she redeems herself. Shug redeems herself by. Uh, calling, at least in the movie, uh, her uh, calling Celie her sister, writes a song about her, which I gotta say is an amazing song, and I love that they bring it back um, on, like, I guess, gets a radio deal or something like that, because it, it's playing uh, diegetically, I'm pretty sure, um, on a record player, on a radio, somewhere at the end on, on Celie's new property, and it's such a great song, but uh, takes essentially takes her under her wing to redeem herself for being the interloper in their relationship, even though she didn't really cause any discord because that that discord was already there, but recognizes that. Suge also um, stays living there longer than she originally planned to kind yeah. of protect Celie. She also helps Celie um, investigate the missing letters mm-hmm. basically um and then eventually takes Celie with her when she leaves the second time yeah and a, a great non-dialogue sequence where Celie is essentially getting her her bearings about being in a different life than a Georgia farm and going to places like Nashville and and experiencing life in the 1930s and the 1940s um, which was quite different from her small farm upbringing in the, I think the character, uh, is born in 1895 or something like that. So yeah, a turn of the century baby who doesn't know anything else and then gets to go out on the town. Uh, and I, I think is sort of loosely based on Alice Walker's life. Oh, okay. Book. Okay. That's, that's an interesting perspective too, even though Alice wrote it. As a fictional story? Yeah, I mean, she, she. I think she grew up in that part of the country mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, was writing about things that she had sort of oh, heard I see about what you mean. or, you know, like, gotcha. you know, that kind of thing. I see what you mean. Okay. Miss Millie always going on over the cup. Mm. Your children are so clean. Would you like to work for me? Be my maid? Hell no. What did you say? Hell no. What did she say? Hey, can't you pump that crude a little faster? Gail, 
What did you say to Miss Millie? I said, hell. No, Miss Sophia. No, Miss Sophia, no! I wanted to get your take before before we end here. I wanted to get your take on um, the portrayal of of the white people in the movie. There are yeah. very few of them, but I have some thoughts, and I'd like to hear your thoughts about the the white folks in the movie first. Yeah. So um, one of the interesting parts that I perceive about this film is that um, Miss Millie, who's <laughs> sort of one of the only main white characters. Speaking um, role, definitely, yeah. Per- perceives herself to be this, like, white savior, basically, right? Mm-hmm. So we have this this kind of, I don't know, trope of um, the white person who sort of feels like, I'm going to save these poor people, you know, um, and aren't I great mm-hmm. and and she even has these lines like you know i've gone out of my way to be nice to you people and mm-hmm. <laughs> in her mind she's like this wonderful person but it, she's super condescending yeah. right oh, she's super yeah. entitled and as soon as it's inconvenient for her she like totally goes crazy and like you know is very selfish so um so her portrayal is certainly not a positive one. And I, I think it's fair in a lot of ways because I think that, you know, that's a pretty standard uh, character that probably would have uh, been encountered by a lot of people. I think that was, yeah, I think Millie was very accurate. A rich, ignorant person who was taught from an early age that there was a difference between white and black people, especially in Georgia. Uh, I mean, we're not too far removed from the Civil War, and we're not too far removed from slavery, and we're not too far removed from, uh, or not at all removed at all from Jim Crow laws, especially in the state of Georgia. And so white people at the time felt empowered by all of that, and you can clearly see that in Millie. Um, even in this uh, multiracial town, there was clear segregation as to where um, the black folks lived and where and we don't even see where the white folks live. We only see them in town. But I think my um, the the scene that stands out to me is when she drives Sophia to her family's house and she's saying, oh, you could stay there as long as you want. And then uh, drops her off, lets her get out, and um, accidentally leaves the car in, like, reverse or whatever. Um, But before she tries to leave, she says, I'll be back at 5. Well, that's not get to stay as long as you want. That's you get to stay until 5. Right. Um, And then she has a freak out because she can't get the car. And this is kind of funny because it's... A new it's a new invention that people have right and they just they don't know how to deal with it i think i thought it was kind of funny from a uh from a technological advancement point of view she doesn't know how to do it which also plays on the trope that women can't drive um and she's struggling to do it and so a, a bunch of these family members including harpo 
and uh, brothers and cousins and things like that come out and try to assist her in putting the car in the right gear so she can get out of there. And she has a breakdown because all of these black people surround her and she feels like she's getting attacked and has a breakdown. And so Sophia comes out and is like, they're just trying to help you. Calm down. And she says, you can, you know, drive. You can drive with so-and-so, a, a, a man from the family. And she was like, nope, can't drive alone with a black man in my car. Yeah. I don't know him. I don't know him. And then she says, okay, well, fine. How about a uh, black woman from my family? I don't know her either. And it's at that point you have to recognize as any person watching this movie that this occurred daily in places. And if, if you if you back up in between, she also, while she's sort of freaking out and the people are approaching the car trying to help her, she starts screaming like, Stop attacking me. Right, yes. <laughs> They're just trying to help her get her car in gear, right? And yeah. she perceives them to be attacking her, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Like, they're just trying to help her. And she's absolutely just, you know, yeah, freaking out about it. Um, And then she won't get in a car with someone that she doesn't know, you know. And either that's because she's afraid of them or because she doesn't want to be seen in town, you know, without anyone who's not her maid, mm-hmm. right? So either way, it's bad news. Yeah, it's bad news. It, it, there's, there's, uh, and, and in the culture the, uh, of the South, which is a, a very strong culture of honor, that would be dishonorable for Millie to, to, do, to be in a, a, alone in a car with a, uh, a black person of that time. It, was beneath, it would have been beneath her and the only reason that that Sophia can be in the car with her is because everyone knows that she's the maid. And so, she's, of course, she's going to be in the car. There was another uh, scene very early in the movie um, that I also want to point out as far as uh, how white people act in this movie, which is the clerk at the general store. And this is um, this is before we get Whoopi Goldberg as an older Seely. This is still the younger actress playing a fourteen-year-old Seely, and she spots uh, an probably a, a young adult woman who has a baby, but the baby uh, may be one of Seely's, uh, and the clerk in this scene is casually talking to another white man um at the counter and uh is is speaking very nicely you can kind of hear them in the background and then uh this woman is looking at fabric because she wants to make the baby some clothes and the clerk comes over and is like what do you want and because this this woman is is also a black woman um and she's, what do you want uh, i'll just i'll take a yard of that and then stares at ceiling and is like what do you want? And, and it's very aggressive toward Celie and toward this other woman because of their skin color. And then goes back to very casual, nice conversation with the other white people in the store. It's is very stark differences. Shared spaces, right? Because everybody has to go there to buy stuff. But very different ways of treating those customers, different customers. Absolutely. and. 
if that's the only store in town, like they have no choice. No choice. To yeah. Go there and be treated badly. I will say there is uh, a white character in the movie that is benign, uh, which is not saying much uh, because benign <laughs> is not good. Uh, benign is just there. It's, it's meh. Uh, and that would be the uh, postman, the mail, yeah. the mail carrier. He's just bringing the mail. He's just bringing the mail, and he lets people hang out on the back of his, on the back of his, uh, his um, cart, and and you know, he, he's he non, he's nonplussed, but he's still also. I mean, he's not a main character, so as as yeah. if I would be expecting more from him. But you know, at least they're not. They weren't all bad, but you know, for a for a white person, Steven Spielberg did do. Uh, I think right by the speaking roles of the white characters in the film by portraying them as they would have acted in that time. And that's not, and that's not a positive portrayal. Right. He didn't try to, you know, put nice white people in there to defend white people or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Which is, obviously extremely important because you know he had he 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 would he will be directing schindler's list in like seven years which is a you know completely different take but also some white people aren't great uh namely hitler you know so (laughs) but also that uh schindler wasn't a nice man until he was so you know, I think Steven Spielberg got, uh, played that as well as he could, but while still only focusing on the black characters in the movie. Because we, I, I think one of the things to point out here, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if we spent too much time with white characters, it would kind of dilute the theme and the, the overall thrust of the, the story, correct? Oh, absolutely. This is not a movie about or or white people like they they do not need to be there (laughs) (laughs) exactly right uh and and you you see the you see the the white people uh with privilege in the movie and it's very contrasted with the uh the black folks in the movie it's just it's it's two sides of a coin that still kind of exists. Well, and and so it's important to point out like this movie in comparison to stuff like To Kill a Mockingbird, Mm -hmm. which is super popular among white people because it shows a white person saving a black person, Mm -hmm. right? That's a white savior book and movie, right? Um, the help is another example of this, right? Mm -hmm. It's a white person helping black people, um, hidden figures, you know, great movie. Um, it, in some ways it features these really smart, empowered black women working for NASA, Mm -hmm. but the Kevin Costner character is a white guy who sort of saves them (laughs) in some ways, right? So you don't need to have a white person in the movie to save the black people like yeah that's not necessary right um and so i think it's important to show movies where people can save themselves yeah 
And I think they, yeah, and I think that that's what happens in this movie. Yeah. So I don't know if I got this. And so my last question to you is, what is meant by the color purple? That is mentioned in the movie. Um, but I think it's probably, again, sort of more featured in, in the book. And my, my interpretation, which is, I think is probably, you know, debatable, is there's a scene where they're talking about walking through a field and seeing wildflowers. Mm -hmm. And they say, it pisses God off if you walk past the color purple and don't appreciate it. So the, the possible interpretation of that is um, it's important to appreciate moments of love. Mm -hmm. It's important to think about what's good in life. If you are a person of faith, you could say it's important to think about your blessings. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that's what it means. But I also think that's just my interpretation. And there are probably other interpretations as well. That was my interpretation. I didn't know if I missed something um, because there wasn't a lot of purple in the movie. Um, and I was wondering if it was missing some thematic quality other than just what Suge says at the end there. Um, about it. And I mean, I think we could both uh, agree that we are not people of faith. And so it's kind of hard to interpret <laughs> the right. re the religiosity of such a quote, because the flower is not purple. We only see it as purple. <laughs> you're you're going all scientific now. Yeah, I mean, so it's like the 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 flower itself isn't isn't that color, the the petals and all of that stuff. So it's just like, well, wait a minute, and then you know, I can I I can spend hours on that. But I wanted to know if there was any broader thematic quality to it, having been looking for, and I. Maybe this is a little uh, naivete on my part, but I was looking for more purple in the movie and see if it like made its way into different things, like maybe something that she was wearing or something that she looked at frequently or it reminded her of Nettie, like the color itself reminded her of Nettie or vice versa, that kind of thing. Um, with Nettie is her sister. I know we didn't talk too much about about Nettie, but. I was just wondering if that was if there was something bigger than what Suge says at the end um, and if there was something broader in the book. But I mean, your interpretation works for me. You know, I think it uh, if if you take it at face value, you know, if God gets pissed off, if you don't look at pretty flowers that are pretty colors, <laughs> then you're done. I, I mean. <laughs> I think, you know, from a psychology of happiness perspective, even at our worst moments, there are things that we can have gratitude for. There are things that we can appreciate about life. Yeah. There are moments of hope and there are moments of optimism that can yeah. take us through those bad times. So I think we can look at it in that way. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of it gets better idea, yeah. I think, is important. Um, so we can look at it in that way as well. And um, and th that same field is at the start of the movie right. and at the end of the movie. So, I mean, we, we end up in the same place that we started. So that might be a part of it as well. The color purple is very 
uh, important to this particular plot of land, which then becomes important to Seely. It's the right. place where she sees her children. It's the place where she sees Nettie again. It's the place where she builds a new life without uh, Albert. <laughs> right. And it, it's sort of a renewal for her yeah. and sort of historical of life and all of these yeah. important things. I, I think we're probably coming to the end of our time. So I'd like to mention one more thing. Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. I think is important. Um, so we were talking about controversy earlier with the controversy of this particular film and the controversy of intersectionality Mm -hmm. um i would like to just say that intersectionality is still controversial it's still considered um politically divisive a little bit um and even in psychology it is considered controversial i wonder who's um, raising that controversy i'm curious um well the reason that this is particularly salient to me is because one of the projects on which I'm working right now is a new introduction to psychology textbook okay. that will be coming out hopefully next year. It's Very cool. published through Sage Publications. Mm-hmm. And um, people who aren't familiar with the textbook writing process, <laughs> uh, you draft a, a chapter and then it goes out to people who teach the class and they give you feedback mm-hmm. on the content and maybe you should reference this cool study or, or whatever. Um, and so I wrote the social psychology chapter Okay. and I mentioned intersectionality. It was basically like one paragraph about self and identity and yeah. self-esteem. And so it was sort of one of the bolded terms, yeah. intersectionality. And one of the reviewers said, I would never use this book in my class because this is liberal nonsense from some kind of feminist crazy person who is using not scientific woke bs and it's not it's not psychology and it's not science and get it off my desk Wow, you laugh at that, but wow, I, and would... I was really angry. <laughs> okay, that's my appropriate response there. Yeah, wow. I'm sort of laughing because it's hiding my uh, vitriol, seething so... <laughs> anger. Yeah, oh my yeah. god. So I'm reading this review, and I'm just thinking, like, and it's an, an anonymous review, right? Which is probably good. <laughs> and I just think, like, okay. This is such the opposite of the person that I would want to, to use my book and, and the, the opposite of what I, I would hope to portray with my with my book um, in, in my classes. And it's absolutely true that I am a feminist and that I believe in intersectionality and I and I yeah. believe, you know, in equality and you know, getting rid of racism and all these things. Um, so I had a, a chat with my co-authors mm-hmm. and um with the editor of the book and i said we're a team and i can't make a decision without all of you on board but my preferred response to this comment is to write an entire chapter called identity and intersectionality <laughs> and to just double down on this yeah who cares about this guy and I'm going to be and bold and say this said, guy. Let's do it. Yeah. So the, we are just 
going for it. And now there's a whole chapter about it. So take that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that guy should probably just stick to whatever hogwash that <laughs> he's using for his intro psych tech book. I mean, the fact that people have was this an anonymous review? It wasn't an anonymous review. Oh, I don't know who it anonymous was. reviews. I I just it's really really something. It's really something how people could just like consider that okay to say just because they're anonymous. I I'm willing to bet that they wouldn't have said that if their name was attached to it. I I don't know. Um, I know that they will not use the book, and that there will loss. be other people who will not use the book because it takes this stance and we can't please everyone. But I think that there will be other people who choose to use the book because we do have the stance. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody should be uh, teaching psychology if they can't put this concept together. Like if they can't, I, I don't, what are they, are, are they teaching that it's like nature only? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, are they how are, the students feel in this person's class either? Oh boy! If they oh feel boy. welcome, that could be. That's all. That's a whole other podcast and a whole other. I was. That's a whole whole day's worth of recording there. Oh boy, lot to unpack. Well, I want to thank Win Good Friend for joining me to discuss the color purple. Wind, before we say goodbye, as always, what are the things that you'd like to uh, plug for the listeners just one last time? I encourage everyone to check out Stranger Things Psychology, and I would encourage everyone to go to The Great Forces to check out Alex's docu-series, <laughs> and uh, maybe next year, my own. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me, Window. It was great to have you on for the sixth time. I'm sure there will be more. I hope so. All righty. And that's going to do it for this one. Thanks for listening.